Hello and welcome to this Hardwick Law Property Team podcast in which we're talking about our favourite 10 cases of 2020, the top 10 of 2020. Speaking to you today will be myself on four cases, then Faisal Sadiq on three and Katrina on three, and we expect the entire session to last just under an hour. I'm going to start with a decision of the Supreme Court, Peninsula Securities against Dunstalls. This was a case on appeal by the Northern Irish Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court. It concerned a situation where a developer of shopping centres had leased a unit to an anchor tenant, Duns, and covenanted not to permit any major store to be built on site in, co- in competition with the lessee. Now, the shopping centre declined and the, it was acquired by a purchaser. purchaser wanted to revive the shopping centre by adding another major store and brought proceedings in the Northern Irish High Court, alleging that the covenant was unenforceable at common law as an unreasonable restraint of trade. Now, the state of the law at this point was that a covenant relating to the use of land was subject to this doctrine if a party who had entered into it had previously been free to use the land as they wished. This was called the pre-existing freedoms test and was explained by the House of Lords in Esso and Harper's Garage. Now, at first instance in Northern Ireland, the judge held that the pre-existing freedoms test did not apply since the lessor had become bound by the covenant at the same time as it had begun to hold the land. That is to say, because it didn't have any freedom originally, it wasn't the original lessor. The Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland, however, allowed the appeal, saying there was no reason of public policy for the principle of the pre-existing freedom test to be allowed to continue. Supreme Court allowed Dunn's uh, appeal on different grounds. It agreed that the pre-existing freedom test should no longer apply, so that is something we should be aware of has no application in the current state of the law. But it applied what had been known as the trading society test. And the trading society test, which was consistent with the doctrine against restraint of test, was that the restraint of trade, forgive me, was that the doctrine of restraint of trade was not engaged if the covenant was of a sort which had become generally accepted as part of the structure of a trading society and appropriate to the type of transaction in issue. A covenant relating to the use of land, the Supreme Court said, was not subject to the doctrine against restraint of trade. It was of a sort which had generally become part of the accepted machinery of a type of transaction, which had been found to be acceptable and necessary. And as we know, all shoppings have anchor tenants and this covenant is an acceptable and necessary covenant. So going forward in the future, stores such as Dunn stores can uh, rely on the trading society test to prevent uh, other major anchor tenants or other major stores being granted leases. So that's the first case. Now I want to move on to the second case, which is Fern against Tate Gallery. And this was a claim brought by owners of rather posh flats on the south bank of the Thames in London, which were overlooked by the Tate Modern Gallery. And they claimed a nuisance relying upon Article 8 of the Convention and claimed an injunction. But just as a reminder, nuisance is a violation of real property rights. It's a property tort. There are three kinds of nuisance, encroachment, physical injury to land, and interference with quiet enjoyment of his land. And of course, the case here was brought under the third limb. Damage is an essential requirement to the tort, but damage can involve a loss of amenity, which is a subjective thing and difficult to quantify. The unifying principle of the tort is reasonableness between neighbours. Now, at first instance, Mr Justice Mann 
found that acts of direct and intentional overlooking could contravene the right to respect for an individual's home under Article 8, and the tort of nuisance was capable of protecting privacy of a domestic home. So he found that the tort was uh, available. But on the facts, there was no actionable nuisance because the claimant had no reasonable expectation of privacy in the absence of protective measures they ought reasonably have taken. For example, rather amusingly, putting up net curtains, which you don't want to do if you've got a multi-million pound posh flat. Now, when the parties polled up at the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal surprised everybody by suggesting that the Tate Gallery might want to uh, lodge a respondent's notice. A respondent's notice, you'll recall, is a notice saying that you want to uphold the reason of the judge or the decision of the judge below for different reasons. And they suggested that Article 8 should not be engaged. So counsel went off and drafted a respondent's notice and the appeal was dismissed on ground that Article 8 was not engaged with no order for costs, perhaps reflecting that this was a new point to not be advanced below. What the Court of Appeal said this was this, overlooking is not capable of giving rise to cause and action of nuisance because it's difficult to apply the objective test for determining whether there'd been material interference with the amenity value of affected land. It's too subjective, they said. Secondly, they said there are other ways to protect landowners, in particular planning laws for control. Thirdly, the real issue was invasion of privacy rather than the damage to interests in property, which was covered by other laws, including those on confidentiality, harassment and so on. They observed that the European Court of, European Court of Human Rights had never held that overlooking by a neighbour was a breach of Article 8. To do so would confer a cause and action of, a cause of action on anyone who had a reasonable expectation of privacy rather than confining claimants to those who had an interest in real property. It would introduce subjective elements such as claimant sensitivity which were irrelevant to the objective approach and it would require the court to balance the claimant's rights under Article 8 against the defendant's rights, which involved considerations that had no role to play in the law of nuisance. So now we know for sure that there is no tort of overlooking. I want to move thirdly <coughs> to a case called Beaumont Business Centres against Florala Properties Limited. And this is a real case for rights of light peaks because it involves um, consideration of rights of light in some detail. Now, Beaumont on property on London Wall, which is a very densely built up area, as you'll probably be aware, and Florala was its neighbour. In April 2015, Beaumont sold freehold of the property to a fund in Luxembourg for £25 million, but leased it back. In the course of that transaction, they agreed a rights to light deed, but Beaumont would retain all rights to light claims for increases in height in Florala's new property up to 11.25 metres, and the freeholder would uh, have a claim in respect of rights to light for an area above this height. <coughs> in the event the freeholders' rights were not engaged. It raises the question firstly about whether you should get an injunction or damages, which is a very pertinent question and also re relevant to one of the cases that Faisal is talking about later. Faisal, knowing of the right to light, developed, let me start again, not Faisal, but Florala, forgive me, knowing of the right to light, developed their property into an apart hotel and there was new massing into the light well adjacent, adjacent to Beaumont's property and an increase in height at the development in rear. A GIA report looking at Beaumont's property said that none of the move, rooms moved from well-lit to not well-lit 
but all move from not well lit to even worse lit. And of the two issues that are of particular interest in the case, the first being injunctional damages, this is the second issue, because what Lara said was that if you move from not well lit to even well lit, or even worse lit, that doesn't give you a cause of action for interference with your right to light. Now, it was a 51-page judgment, and the court held that Beaumont did indeed have a prescriptive right to light. And it summarised the principles rather helpfully. And if I can take you to the summary of the principles by the deputy judge, he said this, the dominant owner is entitled to the uninterrupted access through his ancient windows of a quantity of light, the measure of which is what is required for the ordinary purposes of inhabitation or business of the tenement. Secondly, what's required for ordinary purposes is a question of fact. Thirdly, no actionable interference arises if the amount of light remaining is sufficient for the comfortable enjoyment of his property by the dominant owner according to the ordinary notions of humankind. But the inquiry is not to the amount of light taken, but to the amount of light left. And finally, that the ordinary notions of humankind are not static. So um, what did the judge find? Well, um, they rejected, first of all, the argument by counsel for Clarala that if a room is already badly lit, making it darker still is not an in, in interference. And they also rejected the argument that because the interference was rather small, the uh, judge said it only reduced the value of the properties by about 1.50 to 2.50 per square foot per floor. Um, that wasn't trifling. Beaumont had an action in damages and could demonstrate a loss in rental income. So what did, uh, uh, what did the judge find in relation to this? He assessed damages to Beaumont by relation to the principle of negotiating damages. And you recall that negotiation damages are the damages which would be payable by somebody if they were negotiating to give up their rights. And that applies not just to rights to light, but it replies to things like restrictive covenants as well. And the judge found that the apart hotel was worth 15.9 million as built, but had it, it not interfered with uh, Beaumont's right to light, it would have been worth 14.8 million. So there's a difference there, 1.1 million, and Beaumont should get 33% of that difference for losing its rights to light. However, there was a sting in the tail to this judgment because although the judge found that was what negotiating damages were, he said that Florara had built it deliberately knowing that it was in breach of Beaumont's rights in the hope that it could buy off those rights. And it therefore granted Beaumont an injunction requiring Florara to cut back the development, um, which I suspect was much more expensive proposition for Florara than simply paying 33% of 1.1 million. So this case reminds us of a warning that if you deliberately interfere with someone's property rights, hoping you can buy off those rights in the future by payment of a ransom sum or payment of damages, you will often not be allowed to do so by the court who will enforce somebody's property rights by the grant of injunction. I turn finally on to the case of Capital Park Leeds and Global Radio Services. Now, this is a first instance decision by uh, a deputy judge who came to perhaps a rather surprising decision and interestingly enough he has given permission to go to the Court of Appeal so we will get a review of the decision by the Court of Appeal hopefully sometime later this year. What it was is a lease of a commercial unit for a term of 24 years from November 
2001 with break clauses every eight years. Global took consignment of the lease and hoping to reorganize its business, sought to exercise the break in November 2017. Now, it was a condition of the break that they gave vacant possession of the premises. There's nothing new or surprising in that condition, but the premises were defined in a rather unusual way. And if I can look at clause 14 of the lease, or forgive me, clause 10 of the lease, the premises are defined in this way, having given the address and uh, referred to a plan, the premises were defined as including all fixtures and fittings at the premises whenever fixed, except those which are generally regarded as tenants or trades fixtures and fittings. So can I just emphasise whenever fixed, because this is an unusual provision and it, the question for the judge was what it meant. What the claimant landlord said, it, it said that they had the tenant had removed 17 items such as ceiling grids, fire barriers, window sills, fan corn units, which they hadn't replaced and therefore required tenants to put back in. Since they hadn't put those back in, they hadn't given vacant possession of the premises. It had given something less than the premises back to the landlord. So that was the major art item for discussion in this case. I should say that it was an estoppel argument. There almost always is in vacant possession cases. It was uh, alleged by the tenant that there was an agreement between surveyors that the tenant could stop works and stripping out since the landlord would agree a financial settlement. But this wasn't documented and it's a reminder to us that if uh, the surveyors are to agree things in the run-up to a vacant run-up to a break date it really needs to be set down clearly in writing and the judge found that there was insufficient evidence of such agreement. Now what the tenant argued and this is what I personally found pers persuasive when looking into the case myself and I suspect will be an important feature of the Court of Appeals decision is that the definition of premises isn't, isn't always speaking definition. It depends on what there is there in the premises at the relevant point. And the tenant referred to two cases in this respect, one called Ponsford against H&S Aerosols, which was about a rent review clause in a factory, which said the rent should be reviewed to a reasonable rent for the demise premises. The factory burnt down and the whole House of Lords held that demise premises meant the factory has rebuilt after the fire. And more recently, a 2014 Court of Appeal case, Appeal and Property versus T.S. Sheerness, where the demise premises um, was held to be the buildings from time to time on the site. But the judge rejected that submission, holding that these had no application there since these cases referred to additions to the premises as opposed to things that have been taken away. Whether that decision is right or wrong, we will find out. But it is a reminder that if you are involved in acting for a tenant and you want to operate a break clause, you have to look at the clause on the defined terms in the clause very carefully to make sure that you're complying with them. So I'm now going to hand over to Faisal to discuss his three cases. Thank you, John. My first case is the Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited against the University of the Arts, London. Um, by way of background, the Electronic Communications Code allows the operators of mobile phone networks to acquire rights over uh, properties to install tele telecommunications apparatus. Uh, the code seems to envisage that operators will attempt to come to an agreement consensually with uh, site owners, but if they can't, it's open to the upper tribunal to impose rights uh, 
on the landowner pursuant to paragraph 21 of the Electronic Communications Code. But that provides that the upper tribunal can only make an order imposing code rights if two conditions are satisfied. Uh, first, that any prejudice to the landowner in imposing code rights is capable of being adequately compensated for by money. And second, that the, pu the public benefit in making the order outweighs the prejudice. There's very little case law on how the upper tribunal should apply these two conditions. And when in fact, there is no real case law on it. And so the cornerstone case was the first time the upper tribunal had to really properly grapple with this question. The uh, facts in a nutshell are these. Uh, the case concerns the demolition of the shopping centre at Elephant and Castle. Cornerstone had apparatus on the roof of the shopping centre. As the shopping centre was to be demolished, Cornerstone, uh, the developer had suggested to Cornerstone, look, there's a property just across the road. Uh, we're the freeholder. The long lessee is the University of the Arts London. Why don't you stick your apparatus on the top of that building? The problem was that the University of the Arts London, once the new shopping centre and some ancillary buildings were constructed, uh, they would be leaving that building. Their lease would come to an end. They would be moving to an adjacent building. And their lease of their existing building, the building that Cornerstone wanted to stick their equipment on the top of, effectively provided that until the new building was constructed, I think their rent was about 150,000 a year. But once the building was constructed, the University of the Arts had a, a grace period of about 18 months, after which their rent skyrockets to 3 million a year. So the University of the Arts says, look, we don't want to have this equipment here because albeit it's not going to be happening imminently, in the medium term, we're going to have to decant from our building once we do so, um, we need to get rid of the, the mast to give vacant possession. If we can't give vacant possession, we can't exercise our break, and therefore we're liable to three million in rent a year. And they highlight the fact that one, in order to get rid of the equipment, they would have to go through the termination process for a uh, operator agreement under the code. And then two, once they've done that, they would then need to start the process of getting the operator to remove their equipment. And they make the point that there's no way that they can know for certain that this can be done in a sufficiently timely manner. What's interesting about the decision of the upper tribunal, and it was Judge Elizabeth Cook uh, sitting with uh, Mr. Trott, uh, Chartered Surveyor, was how, she, how the tribunal approaches the issue of prejudice. They understand, identify that actually, while there is the possibility of getting compensation under the code, that generates uncertainty. There's no certainty as to how quickly the university would be able to recover, uh, effectively recover possession from the operator. And they go on to look at the, the potential financial consequences of the operator versus the benefits in having the mobile communications network and also the fact that in order to get vacant possession, the university is going to have to engage in litigation. And what the tribunal says is that having regard to the risks, having regard to the stresses of litigation, the inconvenience of litigation, the two conditions 
neither of them are satisfied. The prejudice is not capable of being adequately compensated for by money because you're not able to adequately compensate stress. Um, I found that a, a slightly unusual, given that that's what we're sort of doing with uh, pain, suffering, loss of immunity damages. And the public benefit in making uh, the order uh, wasn't outweighed by prejudice uh, to, the, to the landowner, again, for similar reasons. This is an important case because, as I say, it's the first case where the tribunals had to grapple with these issues. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether subsequent tribunals follow the same approach. I also think it's probably a very good example of hard cases making bad law because if, for example, the rent didn't skyrocket from 150k to 3 million, you might, I think, have had a different result. The next case that I am uh, looking at is a case, in fact, I was involved in, uh, the London Bar of Southwark against Ludgate House Limited. Um, this case effectively uh, concerns a rates mitigation scheme that was operated by the building owner, in this case, Ludgate House. Broadly, after a, a short period of time, if a commercial building is empty, the despite the fact that it is empty, the building owner is liable to pay business rates, non-domestic rates. Um, there have been a number of schemes that building owners have looked into as a means of mitigating their rates liability. One of them is to get in uh, property guardians. And the way the scheme works is property guardians go into, go into occupation. They're granted licenses. The licenses are pretty... Um, reserve a great deal of control to the property owner so they can be moved about. Um, they have effectively often security functions. The purpose of the license being so onerous is one, the property owner will say part of the function of having the property guardians there is to secure the property against trespasses. But also the degree of control is such that the owner will say these are not tenancies, therefore they are not assured shorthold tenancies. These are licenses. And so they can recover possession relatively quickly. And in this case, Ludgate House's plans were, they were applying for planning permission. Um, once they were ready to go, the building would be demolished. They needed the guardians out relatively quickly. And so from their point of view, we put the guardians in, property secured. And what they say is, um, one, the guardians are in occupation. And therefore, albeit these are not assured shorthold tenancies, the presence of the guardians means the property must be treated as residential and therefore is subject to council tax. So in this case, the property's rates liability would have been about two, two and a half, maybe three million a year. Um, the presence of guardians would probably have reduced the bill to about 40 to 50,000 on a council tax basis. Uh, and additionally, um, they argue that the building is now not one hereditament, but 46 because you have 46 occupiers in city and there are a number of consequences that flow from that. What was um, the upper tribunal took the view that the level of control retained by Ladergate House was not sufficient to cut away from the fact that normally the occupier of the building is primarily in rateable occupation. In the Court of Appeal the issue was argued again and in the Court of Appeal we were looking at cases involving caretakers, security guards, service employees, and lodgers. Uh, ultimately, the Court of Appeal decided, lead decision given by uh, 
Lord Justice Lewison, with whom the other members of the court agreed, that in fact, the level of contractual control retained by Ludgate House meant that Ludgate House was still in rateable occupation. Effectively, the guardians were, if you like, in vicarious occupation on their behalf. The implications of Ludgate House are twofold, really. One, it may significantly uh, have significant impact on the viability of property guardian schemes and rates mitigation. But secondly, lots of companies such as WeWork are using a similar model uh, when granting license to occupy commercial premises. They grant the license in the hope that if it's sufficiently subscribed, uh, circumscribed, they can ensure that the occupier doesn't get a 54-act lease. Uh, but at the same time, they want to shift rateable occupation onto the occupier, partly because if the occupier is occupying a relatively small area, it may be possible to obtain um, small business rates relief. The decision in Ludgate House has thrown all of that very much up into the air. It should be noted that uh, Ludgate House is currently seeking permission to appeal from the Supreme Court. The last case that I would take you uh, to is the decision of the Supreme Court in Alexander Devine Children's Cancer Trust against Housing Solutions Limited. This is a case where the Supreme Court for the first time was considering what to do where a property developer develops in breach of a restrictive covenant and then seeks to have the restrictive covenant removed pursuant to section 841 double A of the Law of Property 1925 Act. Um, effectively, the argument being that the covenant is no longer uh, fulfills a public interest uh, requirement and therefore should be removed. Now, briefly, the facts are restrictive covenant is placed over what is effectively agricultural land that prevents it being developed. The, or a, a large portion of it being developed. Nothing can be put on it. The uh, dominant tenement, tenement then is assigned to a children's home or the charity that was going to construct, in fact, did construct a children's home for terminally ill children. Uh, the idea being the restrictive covenant amongst its many functions would ensure that the children could relax in a garden without being overlooked. Families wouldn't have to worry about being overlooked. Um, developer then buys the Serbian tenement and puts in an a planning application to build, amongst other things, affordable housing on this strip of land. And uh, 13 units of affordable housing are going to be constructed. Uh, there are threats of injunction, both from the children's home uh, and from other uh, adjacent landowners who claim the benefit of the restrictive covenant. And eventually, Proceedings for an injunction are not brought while the question of whether the restrictive covenant can be removed is um, considered by the upper tribunal. At first instance, the upper tribunal says, well, look, the developer knew about the restrictive covenant. They cynically developed in breach in the hope that they could remove the restrictive covenant. But look, we've got 13 units of, I think some of them are affordable housing it would be incredibly wasteful to require them to demolish, and therefore we're not going to do that, we'll remove the restrictive covenant. The case goes to the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Sales gives the lead judgment, um, Lord Justice Sales as, as he was then, 
And effectively, Lord Justice Sale says, actually, this is pretty outrageous. And actually, where a developer has done this in cynical disregard of a restrictive covenant, um, Section 841AA doesn't arise. The tribunal doesn't actually have jurisdiction to um, remove the restrictive covenant. And in any event, if it had discretion, it shouldn't do so. When we get to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, first of all, judgment given by Lord Burroughs, with whom the other members of the court agreed. Lord Burroughs is very clear, no. Uh, certainly the upper tribunal has jurisdiction, albeit their cynical disregard. The question really is one of whether or not the discretion should be exercised to remove the restrictive covenant. Um, his lordship was not willing to go as far as to say cynical disregard necessarily means the tribunal should not exercise its discretion. Makes the point it is a balancing exercise, he's unwilling to consider all of the possible situations where it may arise. But finally says in this case, there were very strong factors that meant that the cynical disregard should not be rewarded. In particular, it is clear that it would have been possible for the property developer to have carried out the development in, without breaching the restrictive covenant. The developer in this case chose to arrange the development in a way that would inevitably breach the restrictive covenant. And in circumstances where it was within the developer's power not to breach, and they cynically disregarded the covenant, the Supreme Court said, yes, the decision of the upper tribunal was wrong. No reasonable tribunal could have come to this conclusion and uh, have quashed, uh, effectively uh, dismissed the appeal. Those are three cases uh, I was going to deal with. I will now uh, hand you over to Katrina. Thank you very much. Um, moving now into the realms of uh, residential landlord and tenant, and the first case that I'm going to talk about is Tree Carroll House Limited and Ronsfield. This decision addressed whether a failure to provide a tenant with a copy of a gas safety certificate within the time period specified in the Housing Act 1988 was a once and for all breach which could not be rectified outside that specified period and would therefore prevent the landlord from serving a Section 21 notice. The facts of this case aren't particularly interesting, and from that introduction, you can probably work them out already. Um, but in summary, the landlord failed to give the gas safety certificate uh, to the tenant at the time they were meant to. They subsequently supplied it, served a Section 21 notice, and the tenant complained that the landlord wasn't entitled to serve the notice because of the earlier failure in relation to the gas safety certificate. Now, having said that the facts aren't very interesting, the case itself is of significance. Section 21A says that a Section 21 notice may not be given at a time when a prescribed requirement was not complied with. Up until this decision, the only authority we had on this point was from Yan Luba QC, sitting in the County Court at Central London in the case of Carriage and Properties and Schultz, where he reached the stark conclusion that failure to give a copy of the certificate within the specified period of time was a once and for all breach, which could not be remedied at a later point, which had the result of a landlord not being able to serve a Section 21 notice and turning the assured shorthold tenancy into an assured tenancy, giving far greater protection to the tenant and reducing the rights and ability of the landlord to regain possession. Section 21A2B, just looking at those provisions in, in some detail, Section 21A2B 
says that a Section 21 notice may not be served when prescribed requirements are not complied with. Regulation 2 of the catchly titled Assured Shorthold Tenancy Notices and Prescribed Requirements England Regulations 2015 specifies the prescribed requirements, which for these purposes include paragraphs 6 and 7 of Regulation 36 of the Gas Safety Installation and Use Regulations 1998. Regulation 366A says that a copy of the gas safety certificate must be given to an existing tenant within 28 days of an inspection. And paragraph B says that it must be given to a tenant before they occupy the flat. The court grappled with the frankly impenetrable provisions and having traversed them, rather graciously stated that they were not as clear as one might have hoped they would be. Taking that summary into account, I'm going to describe the approach as a proposed one. And the court uh, looked at the intention behind the legislation and used that to assist it in interpreting whether the failure to give a gas safety certificate within 28 days was a once and for all breach or capable of remedy. They acknowledged that the primary sanction for failure to comply with the gas safety regulations was criminal prosecution and that the purpose of the regulations was safety and not to penalise landlords. They are of the view that the provisions of the Housing Act were intended to encourage compliance rather than place an additional sanction on the landlord. And therefore, while it was a prescribed requirement that the gas safety certificate was provided prior to service of the Section 21 notice, they found that the time limits in the gas safety regulations themselves did not form part of that prescribed requirement. So they concluded that the time limit went to the criminal sanctions, but not to the consequences in the Housing Act 1988. And that led to the the position that failure to comply at the outset could be rectified later and landlords could still serve Section 21 notices. So for landlords struggling to jump through all the hoops that are in front of them at the outset of tenancy, and this is quite welcome news. There are other provisions in the Housing Act 1988, which are drafted in very similar terms to those relating to the gas safety certificate. And this might this decision might be relied upon by landlords um, to uh, obtain a more lenient approach um, to those initial requirements. However, what remains unclear from this decision is whether the late remedying of the failure to give the certificate when it was meant to have been given requires the late provision of just the most recent certificate or it needs to be the certificate which covered the relevant times plus the current one. And if it's the latter and the landlord in order to remedy needs to late serve the gas safety certificate from the outset of the tenancy, that means that a failure to comply with the regulations at all at the outset would be a once and for all breach and the Section 21 notice wouldn't be able to be served. And it isn't clear from the decision in this case whether that is the intended outcome, but the judges didn't grapple with it um, in that way and it isn't set out in black and white. So there may well be uh, some more litigation to come on this subject. Moving on now to the Earl of Plymouth and Rees. This is a case concerning the interactions between leaseholder and freeholder and gives guidance on how to interpret reservations which benefit landlords. The case involved a farm of around 240 acres, which was let between the same parties under two different tenancy agreements. The farm had been identified in a local plan as a strategic development site. 
Outline planning permission was granted to the freeholders for a large-scale housing development and some other facilities. But to obtain full permission, they needed to carry out a number of investigations on the land which was let. The issue in the appeal was whether the landlord's rights of entry under the tenancy agreements were wide enough to permit the landlord entry. Now, obviously, the answer to that question itself turns on the specific provisions of a specific lease. And we all know that in cases of interpreting specific provisions aren't always on all fours and particularly helpful to us going forward. But the interesting point in this appeal, which is of more general application, is the approach which should be taken when construing the landlord's rights. The tenants appealed the decision at first instance on the basis that the judge erred in his reasoning and on their case, the landlord's rights should have been construed strictly and restrictively. They argued that to take a different approach constituted a derogation from grant and interfered with their right to quiet enjoyment. The Court of Appeal reviewed the case law on interpretation and approved of various previous statements, two of which are significant. The first was as follows. It is also clear that words are to be interpreted in the way in which a reasonable commercial person would construe them. And the standard of the reasonable commercial person is hostile to technical interpretations, undue emphasis on niceties of language or literalism. The second statement that was approved of was this. The landlord is precluded from any action which encroached materially upon the tenant's possession of those subjects during that period. The landlord's obligation to maintain the tenant in exclusive possession may, however, be qualified by the terms of the lease. The Court of Appeal, in reliance on those two statements and some others, endorsed four of the eight findings of the court below on the approach to be taken when interpreting the landlord's reservations. The first is that an exception or reservation will, if possible, be construed in such a manner as to preserve its validity. And that therefore, the court will, where it is possible to do so, construe an exception or reservation as restrictively as is required to avoid a derogation from grant or conflict with the covenant for quiet enjoyment. The third statement was that there is no further rule that a reservation is to be construed restrictively against the landlord. And fourth, however, the application of the standard principles of construction, including the requirement to have regard to all of the provisions of the instrument and to the principal purpose and subject matter of the instrument, will tend to lead the court to expect that substantial qualifications of the rights to exclusive possession and quiet enjoyment will be clear from the plain wording of the lease. So that decision tells us that landlords' rights are not to be construed any more restrictively than in interpreting any other provision in a lease or tenancy. Finally, we move on to the case of Hicks and Holland Park Management Limited. This case provides us with guidance on the obligation for consent not to be unreasonably withheld and what matters might be taken into consideration when deciding whether to grant permission or not. The defendant company was the freeholder of a building which was divided into five flats. Each leaseholder held a share in the company. The claimant, who is an award-winning architect, owned a plot of land at the rear of the building which she wanted to build a house on. Originally, the building and the plot were in common ownership. When they were separated out, the plot was made subject to a restrictive covenant 
to benefit the freeholder of the building. The covenant restricted the owner of the plot from applying for planning permission without the prior approval of the freeholder. There was some early litigation, and in the course of that, it was determined that the restrictive covenant was enforceable and that it was necessary to imply a proviso that consent was not to be unreasonably withheld. So following the first set of proceedings, Hicks sought the company's permission for a single-storey property above ground, which had a two-storey basement. The company refused consent on a number of bases, one of which included aesthetic reasons, as it was deemed that the design of the new building was not in keeping with the existing building. In these proceedings, Hicks sought a declaration that the company had unreasonably withheld consent. At first instance, the judge granted the declaration, holding that, first, the defendant was not entitled to take into account the views or interests of the leaseholders, and second, the defendant was not entitled to raise objections to the claimant's plans on aesthetic grounds because there was no evidence that the structure or value of the freehold reversion would be affected by the aesthetics of the development. The company appealed to the Court of Appeal on the basis that the first instance judge had taken too narrow a view of what a covenantee could and could not take into account when refusing permission. There were three questions on appeal, and I will take those in turn. The first question was, could the company take into account the interests of the leaseholders? The judge at first instance had held that the company was only entitled to take into account matters that affected its own reversionary interest, i.e. the freehold building. That was overturned by the Court of Appeal. In deciding this question, the court looked at who the beneficiaries of the covenant were. They found that while the covenant was in favour of the owner of the building, it was also for the benefit of the leaseholders as the owners of the leasehold interests. It was found that the inescapable conclusion is that the decision maker, considering whether or not to approve plans, is entitled to take into account the interests of those who benefit from the covenant. The second question was therefore, what interests may be taken into account? It was found that aesthetics could be taken into account. And in considering aesthetics, there did not need to, there did not need to be an impact in value on the retained land. The effect on the amenities of the retained land and not just value were potentially relevant and it always depended on the facts of the individual case. The third and final question before the Court of Appeal was, what is the impact of refusing permission based on a mixture of good and bad reasons? Now, giving the leading judgment, Lord Justice Lewison, some might say unsurprisingly, approved of his own judgment in the West India Key case of 2018. And he upheld his statement from that occasion, which was as follows. The theme running through all of these cases is that if the decision would have been the same without reliance on the bad reason, then the decision would have been the same by reliance only on the good reason. And therefore, the overall decision is a good one. In that situation, the bad reason will not have vitiated or infected the good one. And that was my last case of 2020. And I will pass back to John now. Thank you, Katrina, and thank you all for listening. We hope you found this uh, podcast of interest to you. And if you'd like to get in touch with 
any of us, you will find our contact details on the Hardwick website. Thank you and goodbye. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.